Hi, I'm Terry Zabolski, pastor of Grace Community Church in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I'd like to thank you for listening to this week's message. I hope and trust that God's Word is a blessing to you as you live for Him each and every day. Special guest, Jim Douglas. All right. Would you take your Bibles and turn to 1 Thessalonians chapter 1? And we're being chased by the clock, so we'll, we'll reduce this and trust God to have said what he once said. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. <clears throat> you know, this first letter to the Thessalonians was written sometime around 50 A.D., uh, Paul had been there along with Silas and Timothy and had led people to Christ and began to disciple them and had established a church there uh, in what today is known as the Macedonia of Greece. And uh, this was the first place that Paul's ministry actually received a great deal of prominence uh, there in Thessalonica. And after his greeting to the Thessalonian church, Paul recounts several key things. Number one, he tells them of how he always prays for them. And that's not uncommon in the letters of Paul. Uh, time doesn't permit us to go chasing through, but if you look at the letters of Paul, there are many places where he either tells them exactly how he's been praying for them, a prayer report, if you will, and in other places he actually stops and, and gives a prayer. Uh, one of those places that he gives another prayer report is in Second uh, Thessalonians chapter 1 as well. But he tells them first how he's been praying for them and giving thanks to God for what he has done in them and is doing through them there in verse 2. Then he lets them know that he's ever mindful that they have a faith that works, a love that labors, and an, a strong hope, a steadfast hope. In Jesus Christ there in verse 3 next verse 4 he tells them that he's fully persuaded that they are indeed elect indeed elect you know before anything was that is God set his affection on you on you and me you didn't just wake up one morning and say you know I need the Lord <laughs> it didn't work that way uh, none of us none of us would have come to him unless he drew us Jesus said in John 6, the innate monsters of iniquity that we are, uh, there's no way we would have chosen him. Uh, he chose us. And uh, as much as that grieves the hearts of some people, people get upset with you when, you when you say that and you teach that doctrine, it is exactly what the Bible teaches, is that indeed God has chosen you. If you're a Christian today, it's because he chose you, not you choosing him. Uh, and Paul tells these uh, Thessalonian believers that, that he is aware that they are elect. He fully persuaded that they are elect. Now, how does he know that? Paul's not omniscient. He doesn't know everything. He knows that through the evidence that he sees in their lives. You know, they have a faith that works. They have a love that labors. You know, love is something you do. They have a love that labors, a faith that works, and a steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And that's how he knows that they are elect. 
he emphasizes the reality of the Thessalonians' elections. Um, by the word he used, church, the word church, uh, the called out ones, those who were called out from the kingdom of darkness and into the marvelous light of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so they have been called and elect. You heard the pastor pray uh, about us receiving the efficacious or the effectual call of God. And that's exactly uh, what, what we all have received that have come to him. And he talks about how God chose them there in verse 4. And he's seen the evidence of their transformation because of their work of faith, their labor of love, and their steadfastness of hope. The apostle elaborated on the nature of the church with the wonderful expression, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And here he demonstrates the Thessalonians' vital and inextricable union between themselves and the Lord Jesus. You see, the day you were saved, you were placed in Christ and Christ was placed in you. And it's an inseparable union that can never be broken. It's permanent. It's eternal. Eternal life. They had participated or were participating in the very life of God and the life of Christ. And there's an invisible and indivisible spiritual union between Christ and his own. No separation there at all times. Paul said in Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live now, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave his life for me. That's that inseparable union that every Christian has with the Lord Jesus Christ. He further wrote you know, to the Colossians, For you've died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. That's in Colossians chapter 3. So over and over, the New Testament tells us about our union with the Lord Jesus Christ. And that was one of the ways that he knew uh, about the Corinthians' election. He saw that, that, that incomprehensible mystery of the union between Christ and his people was intact in their lives because of the way it played out on the outside of their lives. Now, also in verse 1, in this profound statement, he uses the preposition in just once, but he modifies the phrase in God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ with a single preposition, again, emphasizing that union, that essence of the Father and Son being the same, of the same essence, and of us being one with them in that union. He also uh, uses the Savior's full title here. That's worthy of noticing. The Lord Jesus Christ. Lord. Uh, who's going to be in charge? The creator, the sovereign ruler of the universe. Um, Jesus. Jehovah saves, refers to his human name that he received at birth. And Christ, the anointed one, is the Greek term for Messiah, uh, that, that is the one that God had promised for centuries that would come and fulfill his will. Next, Paul reminds the Thessalonians that when he preached the gospel to them, that they had 
the Word of God was attended with power and with the power of the Holy Spirit who convicted and changed their hearts in verse 5. He also reminded them in verse 5 how his missionary team had conducted themselves while they were among these new believers. That is also crucial to the gospel. You know, so many times it's, it's, it's not what you say or what you do speaks so loudly that a person can't hear what you say. And that's true in Christianity in a big way. Big way. What you do speaks so loudly people can't hear what you say. You can say you love a person all you want, but love is something you do. And one of the marks of this church is love. Don't know if you know that or not, or if you noticed it, but that's one of the marks of this church uh, is how we reach out to one another. And we need to extend that same love outside of this local congregation. That's crucial. You're the only Jesus that a lot of people here are going to ever see. And that union that you have with him and the way he works through you, you are his representation. You are to represent him. And, and we do that very well inside the body. I've, I've noticed that. We, we do that very well inside the body. And I'm not surprised at that. I think I told Pastor this once before, and, and, and he concurs. You know, I can, I can typically sit down and talk to the pastor's wife of any church, not the pastor, but his wife of any church, for 30 minutes, and I can just about tell you what kind of congregation you have. Say, what? Yeah. For whatever reason, the church, the, the climate of the church, whether it's a loving church, whether it's cold and pushes people away, et cetera, et cetera, you can almost, almost 100%, and there's nothing spiritual about this, but almost 100%, you can measure that by the pastor's wife. Isn't that right? <laughs> so, so before I, I actually started attending Grace frequently, I already knew that Grace was a loving church because I knew Faith Zabulski. Not Terry. They'll follow his doctrine. They'll follow her demeanor. Amen. <laughs> That's the way it works. Now test that for yourself. I don't make it any argument, but notice that for yourself. <laughs> then in verses 6 and 7, he identifies three generations of disciples. Three generations of disciples. He said, you became imitators of us. So that's the first generation, us. Represents the first generation. Here he's identifying himself, Timothy, and Silas. Some of your translations say Silvanus, but that's Silas. Uh, these were the team members who first traveled there and led these people to Christ and began to disciple them and establish the church. He later sent Timothy, his hands-on disciple, back to further strengthen this young church and to check on them and to bring him a report which Timothy did when he returned. You can find that in Acts 18.5. The second generation is you. He said, you also became imitators of us. So you represents the second generation of disciples. And here he's identifying the believers at Thessalonica. Now, how do we know that they were fruitful reproducers? Paul tells us they had a faith that worked, a love that labored, and a steadfast hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he tells us how he knew. And where did the Thessalonians get this ethic of Christian performance? They learned it from 
Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Paul, Silas, and Timothy. And, and so now they were being dispatched because it says that their faith was spoken about all through Macedonia and Achaia. That is tremendous. Tremendous. You heard the letter that I just read where the, uh, the Cameroon church in Quinn was talking about uh, the fruit falling from the tree and the fruit on the tree so they could judge the tree by the fruit that you send there. The third generation uh, is the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. That represents the third generation. Those are the people that the Thessalonian church had impacted because it was so powerful and active in its work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope in Jesus Christ. Isn't that a testimony for a church, for a local body? He wasn't emphasizing the building. He was talking about the people. A wonderful testimony for a church to have it said that, hey, your reputation as a church that has a steadfast hope in Christ and, has, and works hard and labor of love uh, has already preceded you. It's out there before you know it's there. That's literally what he was saying. And that's exactly the kind of church we want to be. That, that before we're there, somebody already knows those people are involved, their faith has legs. Their faith has legs. does no good for you. You know, James said, faith without works is dead. Being alone. He said, show me your faith, and I'll show you my faith by my works. How else are you going to show me your faith? I can't see it. You know, your works aren't the cause of salvation, but the result of your salvation. And anytime the grace of God is properly activated in a man's life, good works will follow. They will follow. It's a, you can't help it. It's inseparable. But that is a tremendous, tremendous testimony for, for a church. So they learned how to do this from Paul, Timothy, and Silas, and that's reproduction. Reproduction. You know, addition will never keep pace with multiplication. And that's what this is. That's multiplication. A multiplying ministry. Now, the verse we want to zero in on just for a few minutes, very few minutes, is verse 8. It says, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place your faith toward God has gone forth, so that we have no need to say anything. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, and how you turn to God from idols to serve the living, true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. So in verse 8, he says, we have that, that for the word of the Lord has sounded forth. And it is the word translated in many translations, trumpeted, trumpeted. Trumpeted, the Greek word, excao. It's a compound word. Ex is where we get our root for our word exit, like that sign back there. Exit is a way out. An excavation is you're taking something out. Um, and the rest of the word means to echo forth or echo out. So the word of the Lord had echoed out from this great church in Thessalonica. 
Very picturesque word. Echoed forth. Uh, the Way translation says, From you pealed forth the trumpet call of the message of our Lord. The English Bible says, From Thessalonica the word of the Lord rang out. The pulpit commentary says, The word of the Lord sounded out like a clear, thrilling trumpet strain. Uh, the John Chrysostom, who knew a little bit about trumpeting the truth, said the resonance of a trumpet fills the whole vicinity by the fame of the Thessalonians' faith, but the, way, the fame of the Thessalonians' faith filled their entire area of the world. So the word was trumpeted forth from this church. Trumpeted forth. Now, some foundational truths about this, this text. The gospel comes from God. Here it is called the word of the Lord, verse 8. The word of the Lord. Don't turn there, but John chapter 1, verse 1 says, In the beginning was the word, the word was with God, and the word was God. So the gospel comes from the Lord. The logic of God. That word, word, is the Greek word logos, where, from which we get our word logic. So in the beginning was the logic of God, John 1 1. And the logic of God was with God. And that's an association preposition. Pros, face to face, co equal, co essential, and co eternal is literally what's wrapped up in that one word, with. The word was with God, face to face equals. More time I wish to explain that, but that's exactly what the word means. And the word was always God. Where it says the word was God, it's an imperfect in the original language, means that he always was. Always was God. Co-essential, co-eternal, and co-equal. That is the literal rendering of that verse. And he's really identifying that Jesus Christ himself was God in the flesh. Because if you drop down in verse 14, that same word became flesh and dwelled among us. And we beheld his glory. The glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then in verse 17 of John 1, he identifies that word as the Lord Jesus Christ. So there's a dizzying drop from verse 1 all the way down to verse four, uh, 14 where you have this word identifying as being always with God, co-equal, co-essential, co-eternal, and you find out that this word was God and now the word became flesh and dwelled among us. And that word was the Lord Jesus Christ. So the gospel comes from God, from God. And the word of the same Lord that the Thessalonian believers had trumpeted. Secondly, the gospel is for all men. It is not an esoteric message, a secret doctrine for the favored few or the chosen frozen. <laughs> not at all. It's for all men. And the world needs that. Three, the gospel faces competition from other claims. Constant battle from other claims, false religions. I was, as I was riding along through 
Santa Barbara, California this week, I was listening to uh, Hank Hanegraaff, the Bible Answer Man, and um, they were talking about uh, camping. Camping. Camping has declared that uh, the Holy Spirit has left the church and that we, we should ignore the teaching of the New Testament now and follow his teaching. Isn't that interesting? David Koresh had the same idea. <laughs> totally void of Scripture. But the, the gospel of Jesus Christ is always under attack. The Word of God is always under attack. Satan has been blowing at Scripture light for ever since it's been in our hands. And he's not been able to blow it out for one reason. It is the word of God. Psalm 119 verse 89 says, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled up in heaven. It's a done deal. It's a settled matter. Fourth, each believer is God's trumpet. God's trumpet. The trumpet in the text represents each Christian. Each Christian. Each individual Christian. I mean, it's not enough for you to invite somebody to come to grace, and that's a good thing. Don't get me wrong. I'm not demeaning that, but take grace to them. <laughs> Your grace. Grace is not this place. Your grace. Take grace to them. Trumpet the truth to them, the word of the Lord. <clears throat> the gospel must be sounded by living men, living men. A written gospel is not enough. It's not. Somebody has to proclaim that word. The Bible said, how can they hear without a preacher, without somebody to proclaim, one who represents? And you're that somebody. The gospel can be sounded forth or must be sounded through the daily conduct of men and women. Christ-likeness is more than inner character qualities. You know, we normally equate Christ-likeness to the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, gentleness, goodness, kindness. Uh, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. And that's certainly true. But Christ was more than simply inner character qualities. And that's what the fruit of the Spirit is. Until you work it on the outside. Work it on the outside. He had an outward conduct, an outward display of life. And if we're going to be truly Christ-like, we have to do the same in representing him. The gospel can be sounded forth with the greatest effort from central and strategic positions. If you follow the ministry of the Apostle Paul, one of the things that he did, he always went to strategic locations. He wanted to get to Rome, for example. You know, you've heard the expression, all roads lead to Rome. Yeah, well, all roads lead away from Rome if they lead to Rome. And Paul knew that, and that was a strategic uh, spot for him to go and proclaim the gospel. Thessalonia was the, the capital of, of, Greeks, of Greece, Mac, uh, Greek Macedonia. And he wanted to go there to establish that church because from that place you could drop a, pedal, a pebble in the water and the waves would continue to flow out across the known world of that day. He went to Corinth, and the main northwest or north-south trade route by land, the main east-west trade route by sea, another strategic spot for the gospel of Jesus Christ. Cameroon is one of those spots. It's one of those spots. It, it is the main battleground on the African continent 
between Christianity and Islam. And missiologists believe that as Cameroon goes, so will go Eastern and Southern Africa. If it turns for Islam, then, then so will Eastern and Southern Africa. If it turns for Christ, then so will Eastern and Southern Africa. Those strategic spots where the message can reverberate out. <clears throat> A trumpet sound is produced by the person who controls and plays the trumpet. The Christian's message is to be produced by the Lord Jesus Christ who controls him. Six, the music of a trumpet is not random, but intentional, pre-planned, and controlled. Can you imagine on Sunday morning if, if the praise band got up and the trumpet just blew just any old thing? Jay couldn't handle that. <laughs> we couldn't handle it either. <laughs> but it's controlled and pre-planned. The sound of a trumpet is unmistakable. Seven, unmistakable, undeniable, and unavoidable. Just like the gospel witness of a Christian must be clear, plain. A trumpet sound is penetrating, pervasive, plain, and unmistakable, and also very, very powerful. Number eight, a trumpet is not a stringed instrument, but a wind instrument. It is not played on like a violin, but played through. It's God's purpose to sound his word through the lives of his people, through your life and mine, under his control. The music of the trumpet, number nine, is played by the breath of the player passing through it. A trumpet cannot deliver its message without that breath. The message of the Christian is played by the breath, the Holy Spirit, passing through it. Through that Christian. God wants to give his message through you, and it's under the control of the Holy Spirit himself, which is where the power and authority comes from. It's not in the messenger. Not in the messenger. It can be the most feeble of presentations. Some of you should read the story of D.L. Moody. Now, if he stood in this pulpit to speak to you, many of us would want to laugh him off of the platform. So poor were his speaking skills. And yet, look at the things that God did through that man. Massive, massive ministry. One of God's giants. So the Christian message is given by the breath of God, the Holy Spirit producing it and empowering it through the Christian. Simply, the message cannot be effectively given without it. Can't be given without it. Quickly, lessons for our lives. The Word of God is living and powerful when it is attended by the quickening power of the Holy Spirit. The Word of God is living and powerful when it is attended by the quickening power of the Holy Spirit. You know, I, I know preachers that, that are very, very eloquent, extremely eloquent, great diction, wonderful little anecdotes, all those wonderful things that, that you know, they, they teach you. Um, I remember my discipler, you know, that was one of his things to prepare us for ministry was to, to 
you, he'd give you something to sell. <laughs> and mine was toilet paper. I don't know why. But he'd give you something to sell. <laughs> and, and the people, the other guys sitting in the room could yell at you and scream at you and throw things at you, you know. And, I mean, <laughs> whatever they wanted to do to distract you. And that was to try and train you to be ready to get up in front of people and speak. You know, and some people, you know, if they stood in, in front of more than one person to speak, their lips would move. It's just the way it is. Uh, you know, I mean, I'd throw the rolls at them and everything. You've got to get this. But, uh, <laughs> but, <laughs> but that is just the way it is. Number two, a real work of grace in one place quickly leads to a real work of grace in other places. There's a great work of grace going on here. Great work of grace going on here. Quickly leads to great works of grace in other places. Number three, the lives of good men are priceless in value. Holy lives may be more persuasive than holy words. It was Martin Luther, I believe, that said, we should preach the gospel at all times and when necessary, use words. Number four, the gospel must be sounded forth. It's not automatically self-propagating. The reception of the word means responsibility for the word. To whom much is given, much is required. We sit here each week and feast, guys. I mean, flat-out feast. And I, I know, because I've been places where the, the, the eating was slim. <laughs> the feeding was slim. We sit here each week and feast. And, you know, we don't want to be like the children of Israel who went out and gathered more than enough manna for one day. You know what happened to that? Spoiled. You know, we, we need to give that out. Phillips Brooks, they asked him what was the secret of his great church, and he said, I preach one sermon on Sunday morning, and 500 people go everywhere and repeat that truth to as many people as they can get to listen that's exactly, exactly what we ought to be. The transmission of the gospel is the natural effect of the reception of same. And we ought to be involved in that. Fifth and last, if you're here today and you've not surrendered your heart to the Lord Jesus Christ, you don't have a message of hope. You don't have a message that can change your, change your life or anyone else's. Philosophy doesn't work. It's woefully short. Psychiatry doesn't work. Woefully short. The message of Buddha, Muhammad, Confucius, and all those others is insufficient to change lives. Only the message of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you don't know him, you're not prepared to bring forth a message of hope to yourself or anyone else. And I implore you to settle that with the Lord Jesus Christ this day. Uh, the pastor, the elders, myself, many others here. Uh, are available to, to help you with that, to talk to you about that, and to help you understand what that's about.